So, Berto, tell me what you think. Tough or bluff? People who tell themselves to get excited rather than relax seem to do better at public speaking and on other anxiety-inducing activities. So what do you think? Do you think people who tell themselves, get excited, get excited, rather than, hey, relax, relax, just just cool down, seem to do better, the people who, who, who psych themselves up seem to do better at public speaking and other anxiety-inducing activities? That's fascinating. Oh, my gosh. That might change my whole life to believe that this is tough. I'm going to say tough. It's tough. Before delivering a speech, participants were instructed to say, I am excited or I am calm. And those who said they were excited were more persuasive, more competent, and more relaxed. Oh, my God. That's going to change my life. No, I'm not kidding about this. For my entire life, I have been trying to relax before things, yeah, like at at work, at music, at 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 sex, whatever, you know, like I've been always trying. Yeah, that was probably a bad idea, right? Like, I'm gonna try to relax now. <laughs> no, no, but seriously, like I've always tried to relax. Like I remember back in swim team, it'd be before the the big moment where I have to dive into the water, and and so I would always be like, because I would start getting those nerves, right? So obviously, deep breathing, calm down, and blah blah blah. And uh, before going on live with a band, right, I'd always be like, drink your juice. No, no one should bother you. Be very relaxed. Don't let anything distract. Like, all these things actually making me more stressed. <laughs> well, that <laughs> and you're trying to reject a natural feeling, which is to get excited and to get amped up. So, I mean, it's not like relaxation exercises don't work, but it's an interesting idea that in some situations, you might actually do yourself good by going with the excitement. You know, That's you don't want to say you don't want to say, "Oh my god, I'm so anxious, I'm freaking out," but you might want to go, "I'm actually excited." You know, one of the things that it might do is like cuz I've I've done a lot of things that freak me out. And if I say, "Okay, calm down. Just relax. Just just calm down. Be everything is going to be okay." Then I'm constantly <laughs> focusing on on the anxiety. Right, right, right. Whereas if I say to myself, this is fun, man. You know, you're you're you lean into it. You say right. this, this is what I want to do. What a ride! I, yeah, I can't wait to get excited about this. I can't. You know, it's a different f- frame of mind than trying to resist the natural endorph or the natural adrenaline that it ha- that happens in that instance, right? That's really fascinating. But it actually that totally makes sense. So I I can think of a few examples where I didn't do it on purpose, but that is essentially what I was doing. For example, there's a thing I do. Whenever I need to do something and I and I and I don't really want to do it, that I I just actually I tell myself like, well, we're gonna do it, we're gonna do it. It's starting right now, and I started right, and which is a way of saying like, hey, shut up, just go, just do it, right? Yeah. And also like you know when you're gonna go talk to a girl, for example, like go you know you want to go meet a new stranger and st- stuff like that. I've absolutely done it where either myself or a friend gives me. A, a very easy incentive for me to go after. And then it psychs me out and then I go do it. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to like, calm down, breathe, yeah, yeah, yeah. breathe, walk up to them. Yeah, Can yeah, you imagine yeah. the, how failed this would be? Uh-huh. Just walk up to Just breathe. <laughs> just keep you. Just look down. Uh-huh. Don't look at their eyes. Just go, oh God. <laughs> well, on that note, welcome to the podcast called Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, professor and licensed therapist. And I'm Humberto Castaneda. I uh, advise people on how to relax people for big presentations. Yeah, good. Well, now you can tell them to not relax. <laughs> Apparently, I'm out of a job. <laughs> Today's podcast is a set of random tougher bluffs on psychology because I have not prepared a topic, which usually takes me a long time. I'm pretty busy with work th- work these days. I hope to have more time in the future. 
All right, tougher bluff, Berto. Google searches for stomach ulcer symptoms were up 55% during the recession from late 2008 through 2011. Google searches for stomach ulcer symptoms were up 55% during the recession from late 2008 to 2011. You remember this this recession? Oh, oh do I ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you think? 55% increase in Google searches for stomach ulcer symptoms. You know what? I mean, that's a large increase, but it was stressful times for lots of people, so I'm going to go tough. Bluff, 228%. Shut up. <laughs> Are you kidding me? No. That much? Yeah. Everyone had stomach problems. Well, there was an increase in the amount of searches on Google, <laughs> which might be associated with the amount of ulcers that people What are- you're saying is that conclusively, everyone had ulcers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You got one? Yes. Okay. During the late 1700s and early 1800s, several French psychologists led a movement against metaphysical- uh, study of psychology. Tough or bluff? So in the late 1700s, early 1800s, several French psychologists like Victor Cousin, Theodore Joffrey, and Paul Janet led a psychology movement against metaphysics. Was it in France? Maybe. It's technically a bluff because what happens is the Victor Cousin, Theodore Joffrey, Paul Janet were members of eclectic spiritualist schools and they were actually uh, metaphysical schools, and they opposed regarding psychology as a natural science. Interesting. Yeah, so they, they were very like, oh, it's all, you know, t- uh, probably like new agey, but back then it wouldn't have been new agey. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting. Yeah, the 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 history of, of psychology in this area is very interesting. The main stuff that I've read has to do with how psychology came out of mesmerism and the thoughts around that's pretty interesting, you know, to mesmerize someone. Right, right, right. Um, and seances were involved in early, what eventually evolved into psychology, through psychology, hypnotism, this kind of stuff. I think my, what, what's interesting, you know, the timing of it might be interesting here because I would have thought, if you asked me the question, I would have said, no, no, absolutely, they were probably naturalists because in my mind, I think the French Revolution, right, like, you know, enlightenment and like, you know, people coming to the, but, but by this time, Napoleon was crowning himself emperor. So they were, they were actually regressing a bit in that, in some of those fronts. That so, might be related, but the, when you study the various different schools, particularly in psychology, you find a lot of people latching on to a particular idea sure. and rejecting all other ideas. <laughs> There was a there up until really twenty years ago. There was fighting between every single school, and in fact, last Saturday I got into a long, drawn out argument with a guy about psychoanalytic and psychodynamic theory. I was saying that the Oedipus complex is not supported by evidence, but a lot of Freud's ideas can be supported by evidence if you frame Freud's ideas in a particular way. And he was saying, as a psychodynamic psychiatrist, he was saying that you, that me, uh, considering myself a psychodynamic psychotherapist, cannot accept part of Freud's uh, belief system and reject part of it. And we were going back and forth, and I was saying, well, why? why? Why do you have to take everything Freud said? Even Freud disagreed with himself and would say, look, I've given it some more thought. And and he only had a, a small set of data to go on, namely himself, and he had the Oedipus complex, 
that that's where he got that from. Of course, yeah. But but the others, you know, and and, and you know, you can't fault a guy for not having much data. It's not like they had right. large data sets to, to draw upon. So I'm sure if you were alive today, he would probably reject it or modify it significantly. And he was saying, no, you cannot separate Oedipus complex from psychodynamic theory. You can't do that. And I was like, why can't you do that? And we're going back and forth. And then finally, he he said, well, you can't do it because, and then, you know, dot, dot, dot. And I said, dogma. I said it. And I thought for sure he was going to go, no, not dogma. And he said, Yes, dogma. And I thought, all right, well, that's then we got it. Oh, the movie. I love that movie. <laughs> so in that movie they prove it. <laughs> no, but but so that's interesting. So And there are and and there are most people believe that. Most people believe that if if you if you believe in a particular theoretical position in psychology, you have to accept the whole thing. And by definition, you cannot integrate with another theory. Are you serious? Oh, yes. That seems so counterintuitive to me because I could I could understand that. So me coming from a background with mathematics, I could, I could see that with math, right? Because pretty much you build it on a foundation of proof after proof after proof. If, if you come with an, a counterproof to something that is a foundational theorem, yeah, it upsets the whole fucking system. Right. But what you're talking about, like the study of the mind, right? Right. Where it's so squishy and squashy. Right. You're telling me like it's all right or wrong? Come on. But there were, and this movement ended, you know, 20, 30 years ago. There, like physics and math and medicine to some extent, psychology most were interested in trying to reduce it to a single theory of the mind. Oh, okay. People were actually aspiring to discover the universal model of the human mind. I see. And f everyone failed to do that. And so part of their fighting with each other was, no, my model's right, because uh, I, I, ha I have evidence of it. No, and the other people's like, well, no, my model's right. You're wrong because da da da, da. Plus, everyone's trying to sell their books and you know get hired for lecturing and that kind of stuff. But yeah, and I, so yeah, I've I've been in fights with it very respected, wise, well-read individuals that take this position that you cannot integrate things and you cannot pick and choose what you like out of these theories. And I always ask them why? Why can't you? I do it. Why can't you? And they never have an answer for it. They just say, well, you just can't do it. It's, it's disingenuous or it, it, you lose the integrity of the theory or these kinds of things. And I just think, well, what does that mean exactly? So I, again, it's so counterintuitive because like if you're trying to help someone, if that's the point, yeah. right? And then a combination of methods right. ends up helping someone. Right. Let me give you an example just to concretize this. So if someone had a childhood experience with their father, you, know, you say you have a boy, and, and he had an experience with his father where his father was critical of him. And the boy grows up with a complex around being criticized. Well, the theory that lends itself to that analysis or even the language I'm using so far is either Jungian or psychodynamic or psychoanalytic. Most of the other theories, I mean, maybe cognitive theory with, you know, with the idea of, of schemas, but psychodynamic theory in my mind has a lot to offer in terms of the formulation, conceptualization of that complex. Now, say the same person, you know, me as the clinician and this, this same client, he also says he's 35 and he's, you know, he's at work. He, he says, oh, I just feel like such a failure lately. And I, and I say, well, why? And he says, you know, I feel like I just haven't been getting any work done. I just, 
I feel like I just don't have energy to get any work done at work. And I, so I talk with him. So, well, what's work like? Well, da, da, da. comes out, he's working 60 hours a week and he's getting in a good 25, 30 hours, but the rest of the time he's, you know, floundering. Mm. So in my mind, I say, this is a cognitive problem and a cultural problem. So culture in Seattle has, and particularly cor- corporate culture, has indoctrinated him because it definitely facilitates profit for those who benefit from this idea that you are lazy if you work 40 hours a week, that you're a bad employee, that you're not getting anything done. And so he has adopted this cognition, this thought, this belief, and it's been embedded in him. And I need to, through cognitive therapy, help him understand that this thought that he's choosing to believe is getting in the way of his well-being and that if he adopts a different thought, which is if you can get 30 hours of good work done in a week, you have succeeded because that's really all you can humanly expect from people. Anything more than that, your brain starts to go mushy. Plus, it's just unfair to an employee to make them work 60 hours a week plus, which in Seattle is like the norm, which is absolutely crazy. You said this to me before. You said, I'm so lazy. I never get anything done. And I'm like, I know you work 55 hours a week. How in the world is that lazy? You're talking about getting chores done after you work 10 hours a day. So how is that? How in the world could that ever be lazy? <laughs> that's a good. So no, no, that's that is true. But that's how <laughs> Americans feel. Well, and there's okay. But so anyway, also, my point my point here is that I can see him both through the psychodynamic right. lens and the cognitive therapy lens and apply both those theories and help him. Right. And how in the world is that going to screw things up or or be a problem? No, I, I mean that would be my intuitive layman approach. Would be hey. Let's find some techniques that, when combined together, work. And and actually, mostly because there's some research showing that they have some benefit, right? Like, this seems to help. This seems to help. If, on the other hand, there's something that's like, this doesn't have any evidence one way or the other, then it's kind of hard to know. Or worse, there's counter evidence. You know? Right. There's um, no evidence that integrated therapists produce worse outcomes than non-integrated therapists. Um, side note, on the... The work hour thing is really bizarre because so if you're working in a manual labor thing and you and you're working, you know, 60 hours, 70 hours a week, like you know that's rough because like the foreman's like I mean like you're actually putting that grommet into that thing all day long. Like that's what you're doing. And it's hard on your body. And it's hard on your body. And and if they fall, they notice they fell. <laughs> like meaning if you like let them go by, they know how many parts per million you're not doing. And so like that's really hard. That's why that's why there's so many suicides sometimes in some of these factories and things like that, you know, in the in like the third uh, China or in, in like third world countries where they have uh, abusive labor practices. But the thing with the tech industry that's really bizarre, and I saw this because I used to be in the tech industry, <laughs> is uh, you'll find it on, on either extreme. You'll find people that say, I work 80 hours a week. But then if you actually follow them and you see what they're actually doing, they're not working 80 hours a week. Like to your point, they're, they're working like, 10, 15 hours a week. Right. And the rest of the time, they're appearing like they're doing work, right. but they're not. They're either browsing the web or chit-chatting or going to long lunches or whatever. And I know this because I've been in so many different teams and I've seen it. And it's like, oh, God, I'm, no, you're not working. I know what you actually, that's not what you did, right? But then you have the opposite, right? You have the people that are that are actually working themselves to death. Well, that's my experience you know? with a lot of people. I mean, certainly there are a lot of people that are 
claiming they're working 80 hours. Well, and they're both stressed, by the way, because they both feel the pressure of doing all that work. It's just some of them aren't doing anything, (laughs) and they're even more stressed as a result. But in my experience in Seattle, when people are working at places like insurance companies or Microsoft or maybe Boeing, if if they're salary, probably not Boeing, actually, because they probably have like better labor practices, but particularly places like like Google and Microsoft. Right. These people are 100% expected without reservation and with no exception to work 60 hours a week and to reply to emails at 10 at night by their, you know, from from work. And I just find this to be a, an epidemic. A lot of people are suffering as a result. Family life is suffering. I want, and, and and to what end exactly? Right. And the, France has passed laws trying to protect people this way. Yeah, you know, recently they even have something where you can't you can't work past six or something like that. But it makes total sense because the way the system operates, it makes total sense. The the owners want to make money. Okay, so it's their job. It's absolutely their job, and in their best interest, and they should do this is to squeeze as much productivity out of everything you have, every asset you have, including the human. So if you have a car. You use that car until it can't be used anymore. You don't buy a new car uh, a year later. No, you drive that thing until it's done, and then you buy a new car. With in with human beings, you work them as hard as you can because if they work twice as many hours, the idea is is that they they produce twice as much stuff for right. you to sell. So now you have the w- workers, and they're all salary. So and they're not unioned necessarily. They're 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 not in a union. But even if they are, it doesn't necessarily help because right. unions in right. the, in the states don't necessarily work for labor. But if you have ten people and in, and all of them, and it's a meritocracy, so that person that works the hardest moves up the ladder, right? So in order to demonstrate you're working the hardest, you come in early and you leave late, and you answer that email at 10 o'clock. At That's right. So now that person gets gets promoted. Now that person is the sort of person that, that is a workaholic. That, yeah. <laughs> and now they demand everyone else to do that. Right. And you just go up and up the ladder. And so the right. person that's at the top of the ladder is the biggest workaholic of all. And therefore, and has lost all the family life right, and, right. and has no interests and no hobbies. And just, well, that's just what you do. And so, and there's no incentive to say, hey, um, I only want to work 40 hours a week. Uh, right. So could you please not give me that extra job? Right. You will be eventually worked down the ladder and maybe even fired. Not fired because you're not working a lot, but because you're not a team player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They use all these phrases in sure, these corporations. Yeah. You're not a go-getter. You're not a self-starter. You're not enthusiastic. You don't care about the product. When in reality, they're just trying to squeeze as much profit out of you as possible. Right. No, it's it is the the god money. <laughs> yeah. And I what I blame is all of us workers. I think we need to push back cuz the unionize man because well <laughs> Or at the very least, just say, we're not going to do it. <laughs> you can't make me work more than 40. I mean, salary was supposed to be like, you know, 40, 45 hours a week, you know, like, get, right. or maybe even 30 some weeks because, you know, your salary, you, you, you adjust. But now salary means 60 hours. Yeah. And when did that happen? <laughs> you know, the, 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 the 
American dream was 40 hours. Go home, well, it's, be it's, with it's, your family. It's not just the dream. I mean, you, you, I'm sure you have, you could point to research and stuff, but, but there, there has been many, many, uh, copious bits of research about how much a human can actually do productively, right? right. And especially when it comes to mental output, right? Right. Like that's why you would think, well, why don't we send kids to school for 16 hours a day? Right. Right, they'll learn that much faster. Right, really? Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. No, there's been many studies that prove that beyond a certain amount, you actually start making major mistakes. Like, you know what? What does what the Olympic teams? Right, the let's say the the Olympic swim team. Right, if you're training for the Olympics, then logically you should probably sleep three hours and the rest of the time swim nonstop. Right, and I'm sure you'll win. Right. Uh, okay, I have a tough. Uh, okay, Charles Bell and Francois Magendi, Magendi uh, independently discovered the distinction between sensory and motor nerves in the spinal column. So Charles Bell and Francois Magendi independently discovered the distinction between sensory and motor nerves in the spinal column. Tough uh, sure, tough. I have no idea. Yeah, it's tough. Charles Bell in, uh, where is this? Oh, it's it's in England, I guess. Yeah. Although Francois sounds French, but these guys... Oh, I see. Charles Bell must have been British. Francois Magendi must have been French. And they independently discovered the distinction. Isn't that crazy, though, that like... That how, happens, what kind that of happens experiments were they doing these at these times? They were cutting cadavers and stuff? Uh, What were they? Like, um, how do you... Well, the two motor neurons or sensory neurons? Yeah. Yeah. They in the might spinal have been, column, right? Like, Yeah, they might have been cutting in animals... And then oh, right. seeing if they could move and right. or sense pain. And right around the same time. Yeah. That happens all the time, you know? Yeah. Like Newton had his yes. person who discovered Newtonian physics at the same oh, time. Calculus. Or no, ca- calculus. calculus. Him and calculus Le- at the same time. Le- Le- Leips- Leipzig. Uh, what's his name? Yeah. Le- well, we don't know because- Le- Leibniz. Leibniz. Because yeah. for whatever reason, he didn't- he was, <laughs> There's other ideas that were discovered yeah. around the same time. All right. Uh, this is a series of tougher bluffs. Regarding life expectancy, okay? Regarding um, ethnicity and this sort of thing, okay? So, tougher bluff, life expectancy for white Americans is 85 years. Life expectancy for white Americans is 85. Tougher bluff. 85. Is it up to 85 now? Uh, And this is like both men and women, whites, both men and women, average out. Uh, That sounds sounds a little high, but I'm going to go tough. Bluff 79. Okay. So should, I, I thought should have gone with high. your gut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tougher bluff, life expectancy for African Americans is 75. So 79 for white Americans, 75 for African Americans. Yeah, I'll go tough. I know it's lower. Yeah, it's tough. Life expectancy for Asian Americans is 99. So 99? White, white 79, mm. African Americans 75, Asian Americans 99. I My grandma's I, 99. I'm going to go bluff, I'm going to but I am going to say it's like 90 or yeah, it's like 90. Close bluff 87. 87, okay. So white 79, African Americans 75, Asian Americans 87. That's that's nice. <laughs> Crazy. I know my grandma she turns 100 uh next year. I mean, that's that's a whole whole decade more than whites or what did you say 89 or 87 you said 87 87 so yeah. so it's okay fine but so it, eight years it's an extra almost a decade more than whites yeah and more than a decade than african-americans yeah life expectancy for latino americans is 83 tougher bluff so oh. that's more than whites 83 man in Colombia, i'd say it's tough but up here it's probably it's probably bluff why it's, 
because they work hard and stuff. It's tough. Eighty three. Really? Yeah. Oh, good. Latino Americans. <laughs> Did you just feel like you got an extra lease? <laughs> yeah, in life? I just got a few more years. <laughs> okay, life expectancy for whites is highest in D.C. Tougher bluff. Life expectancy for whites is highest in D.C. Oh, that's a good question. Because the only whites in D.C. are rich, powerful congressmen. So I'm going to say tough. It's tough. At 84. Yeah, it's where the money is. So the whites in D.C. live five years longer, on average, than the whites in the rest of the states. Um, Where do you think Washington ranks? Washington State in yeah. terms of white lo- longevity. Yeah, that's good living out here, but it's a big state. So, uh, can I give you a year number, like a sure uh, or okay. rank or rank? Out okay, fifty-one. Oh, okay. I'll say Washington ranks number three, nineteen Ugh. at eighty, which is really? basically average. 19. So, Washington State whites are average. They don't what? live longer or shorter. That's surprising. Yeah, you'd think we'd be healthier. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait, who, who are some of the top ones? Uh, oh, the rich states, East Coast. I don't know. It's because they have so much money. I'll have to look. The money makes them live longer. Yeah, well, that's true. Uh, life expectancy for whites is lowest in Louisiana. I believe that. Tough. Bluff, West Virginia. Oh, okay. 75. But I believe that in the southern states, they eat themselves to death early. I, I remember looking at the stats and like it didn't really pan out like that. Really? Yeah. Life expectancy for Asian Americans is highest in New Jersey. What, wait, for, for, for who? For Asian Americans. In New so Jersey? Life expectancy for Asian Americans is highest in New Jersey. Are there even Asians in New Jersey? <laughs> I'm going to go bluff. San Francisco. Can you imagine like the Jersey Shore with like five Asian, five Asian guys? It's tough. Eighty nine. What? So it that is tough. isn't that weird? It's like highest for Asian Americans. Highest what about in New Jersey. New Jersey would. <laughs> yeah, it, Washington. What do you think the Washington is for Asian Americans? So yeah, so Asian Americans uh, is eight eighty seven. Eighty seven. So eighty seven. Eighty five. Really. 85. Wait, what is it about Washington that's killing us early? I don't know. Life expectancy for Asian Americans is lowest in Hawaii. So no way. Asian Americans lowest in Hawaii. Wait, wait, wait. That is the most surprising so far. Here's my thinking. You're in Hawaii, low stress, good living, good sunshine, fruits, veggies. You're generally not oppressed because you're the majority. That's right. I just came, from, I just came from there and I, it's the only place I feel they racially They die the youngest? Normal. Uh, well, that's what the tougher bluff is. Life expectancy. Why would you attribute too much saturated fats from pigs? I don't in Hawaii, like coconuts. I don't get it. What do you think? Tougher bluff. Oh yeah, I see. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm gonna say bluff. That's impossible. It's tough. Eighty-two. They still live longer than the average. Wait, white. but how do you explain that? That's crazy. Uh, I would suspect that the racial mix in Hawaii is particular than. The racial mix in other parts in other states. That's one guess. Um, Hawaii might lend itself toward uh, a lesser healthy lifestyle, you know? Because I yes. just came from Hawaii and there aren't, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of exercising in Hawaii, which makes sense because it's hot and humid, you know? You would, I see in my mind, that's funny. I, I could see that in my mind. They're all on surfboards. They're no. healthy. They're, they're all sitting around. <laughs> really? Uh, I mean, you know, they're not 
it doesn't seem like everyone's obese, but you know what though, it makes sense though. In the coast of Colombia, it's it's there's a lot of obesity too. Yeah, it just seems like because like when I was there, I actually resolved before going. I was like, I'm gonna exercise every day. You know, yeah, mm-hmm. I have time. I'm not working. Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna do some exercising. I didn't exercise once because <laughs> it was too. It's too, too relaxing. Hot. It's too, oh, it's too, too hot. hot. It's too yeah, hot. I mean. Hawaii is hot and humid. Yeah. It is hot. Hot. <laughs> and the last thing you want to do is like is is exercise. Right. At least me. Anyway. <laughs> I did see some people jogging, which was really Oh, bizarre. I would have been jogging for sure. It I've jogged really in Vegas. Yeah, I know. Early in the morning at like six and stuff. <laughs> but you know too much about Freud, so I can't ask you this. <laughs> That's not fair. For the listeners, it might be more interesting to do more, to do less obscure names. Okay, I'll do, well, actually, this one will be fine. Carl Jung, Jung, Jung? Jung. Jung. Or Jung. Jung. was an associate of Freud. C.G. Jung, as we should call him, as he liked to be called. C.G. Jung broke with Freud over his emphasis on the primal brain's influence on 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 the personality. Like the hypothalamus, that kind of thing. Broke with Freud, Freud because yeah. of Freud's belief? Because of Freud's overemphasis on the, the influence of the primal brain on the overall personality. The primal brain? Yeah, like the, the thalamus and the oh, okay. thyroid. And the, uh, that's bluff. C.G. Young broke with Freud because of his emphasis on sexuality, childhood sexuality. Ding, ding, ding. That's right. Yeah. You're right. Oh. See, these are more relevant, right. just by the way, <laughs> to, to the listeners, because they won't know this. Yeah. You know. That's fair. But I might. You got any more? Yeah. The second word in the page I'm looking at. It, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. One second. <laughs> Tougher bluff. Babies start yawning at one week after birth. Tougher bluff. Babies start yawning at one week after birth. Tougher bluff. Yawning, yawning. Oh, that's a good question because at first I would say bluff because they're asking for food right away, but that's crying and maybe opening their mouth, but not necessarily yawning. I, that's fascinating. I'm going to say tough. It's bluff. They start yawning in the womb. What? Don't they ingest water? <laughs> no, so no, wait. So do they, do we know what the yawning is for in the first place? Scientists are still debating that. Wow. There's a lot of ideas as to what yawning, what purpose it serves. Is it? Some people think it's to get oxygen, but some people say that doesn't make any sense. Some people say it's a social thing. Some people think it's a way of cooling off the brain because when you're tired, your brain overheats sometimes, and so you yawn to breathe in a bunch of cold air to to cool off the brain. Some people think it's an aggressive thing. It's a way of of expressing aggression. That's crazy. It's obviously social because when people see other people do it, it is highly contagious. I think it's even contagious in other mammals. But yeah, the the I think the jury's still out on that. Last time I checked, anyway. Huh? Kind of weird. It's a. It is a, a very bizarre thing. It's a. I think one of the reasons why we don't know is because there are some things that humans and animals do that don't lend themselves to a, <laughs> a reductive explanation. Like we do it because of blank. There's a lot of things about life that don't lend themselves to a simple answer. That's or, true. Or even to an answer at all. That's true. You know? Like it might just be that it used to have a purpose long ago in some ancient mammal. Right. And it just never got selected out. 
That's you know, right. like we just all the mammals still do this thing that used to be purposeful and, and helpful to evolution. And now we all just do it because it's just this holdover from something that like happened. maybe food used to be really big. And so they had to open their mouth really wide for it. <laughs> <laughs> And we forgot. We're like, well, it's not that big nowadays. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or maybe they had really small mouths. And now we have really big, really mouths. big mouths. So, okay. So, here we go. Do you, know, do you know who William James from Harvard, 1875, William James, have you heard of this name? Yes. Okay. So, the, the physiology instructor, William James from Harvard, uh, argued in a series of lectures at John Hopkins University in around 1878. He argued... Around when? 1878. Uh, but the year is not part of the thing. He argued that the consciousness has no evolutionary function. That would be bluff. William James was big on consciousness. Did he believe in evolution? He probably did. Uh... My guess is that's bluff. He probably did believe it had to do with evolution. It is a bluff. It said he argued against Huxley, uh, saying that consciousness must have had an evolutionary function or it would have been naturally select, or it would not have been naturally selected in humans. Argued. That's, that's an interesting argued. question, right? Yeah. Because uh, the, the, how do you say it? Like the uh, complexity of the brain could have developed just to solve problems, right? And as a side effect, the consciousness grew more and more complex itself, right. but not necessarily because of it. You know, like right. th that's an interesting. Uh, well, question. we have to define what consciousness means. Uh, self awareness, I yeah. guess. I like, think that's what they're referring. Yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. Like the I am me. You know, I think, therefore I am. These right. kind of things. Right. Um, and then, therefore, language, and therefore, thought and discussion and blah blah. Or not thought, but you know, because because you could think about philosophy. Like, if you philosophy, will. you could think about like, hey, this animal seems to have a larger capacity to solve problems with tools and now he gains a, an ecological advantage over this land because right. he can do this and that great well let's do more of that right and then all of a sudden oh now they're like talking to each other oh shit we didn't anticipate this right and i would argue that in some way that that it is uh it is not evolutionary advantageously or advantageous but it only if you are talking about dna evolution if you're talking about progression in the history of the universe well, we couldn't have created maybe computers that might surpass us without the ability to have the consciousness and the thoughts. And the yeah. Things. So this isn't really my area, and it's a vast field regard, you know, regarding consciousness and evolution and whether or not certain things were necessary for our species to survive or if they were a byproduct of some other evolutionary pressure or evolutionary development. Like language is sometimes debated as to whether or not it was selected for, for evolution or if our bigger brains just randomly fell upon language. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know if we'll ever be able to answer that question, honestly, unless we experimented somehow on a species, you know, which it would be difficult, but it, it's it's an interesting question, and you know a lot of really smart people debate it. I think even Noam Chomsky gets in on this debate sometimes. But uh, but it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, you would think if like if uh, if a set of animals have some form of basic communication that allows them to coordinate and therefore dominate their environment, then the people, the animals that are better able to to use that communication method could be at the same time. 
in more modern times, you could say, well, certainly people that can express themselves really well tend to be naturally selected positively because right. they get mates that are more attractive and blah, 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 blah. Right, right. But who knows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think language is one of the things that's yeah. debated. I mean, but, I'm but sure I know it that, is. But I know that consciousness is is definitely debated in that way because it's harder to draw an evolutionary advantage to knowing that you're going to die. <laughs> You know what I mean? Right. To to having consciousness of of your place in the universe. Oh yeah. Or a consciousness of God or something. You know, it you'd almost think it would actually hurt your your survival by understanding those things. Right. It certainly has hurt our survival as a you know fighting with each other regarding um, the dogma around. That's right. This idea because with language comes beliefs and and comes consolidation of belief. Yeah. Imagine if none of us could speak. Well, we, would, we wouldn't we would have Fox News or MSNBC. We could or draw <laughs> things, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He draws in straight lines. She draws in wavy lines. Let's go to war. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, oh, man, that is fascinating. Well, in a long-term view It's of Adam things. and straight lines, not Adam and wavy <laughs> lines. <laughs> In a long term straight uh, straight in a long term view of things, imagine if you know we end up self destroying ourselves because of our differences of opinion. So then someone could some alien could conclude in silence. <laughs> they could conclude dialogue is bad for evolution. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, so uh, I have one. Um, do you know G. Stanley Hall? Does that name ring a bell? Yes. Uh, have you heard of the um, the American Journal of Psychology? Yes. Okay. So uh, he helped create it, or he created it with. In 1894, this guy Hall uh, decided to appoint an editorial board and opening the American Journal of Psychology to more psychologists, not within his immediate circle. In 1894, Hall appointed an editorial board for the American Journal of Psychology. Man, I have no idea. I'll say tough. Uh, in fact, it was, no, it was bluff. He was opposed. So he got his buddies together. They started the American Journal of Psychology. And then several people approached him. It's like, hey, man, why don't we appoint an editorial board? And he refused. So these guys, these other guys started the Psychological Review, which rapidly grew to become a major outlet. So I guess they were these competing, like, I see. like publications. <laughs> All right, well, now let's go on to our second phase in the episode where we talk about music. If you're not interested in Umberto and I talking about music and composition and our past musical interests and activities, (laughs) then then by all means, you can turn off the podcast and uh, leave us now. But if you're interested, stick around. We're going to talk about some stuff here. Last time we talked about one of your songs on our album that we made together. And this time I thought we'd talk about one of the songs that, that I wrote. And this song, one? This song's called All For You. Ah, yes. And I thought I'd play you the just just the beginning just to kind of give you the, the gist of it. And then we talk about it.
So this song's called All For You, and it was a song that I wrote the lyrics with someone else, and the lyrics were about a cat of Umberto's that had been tragically run over by a car and didn't pass away right away, but eventually died. And Berto and I loved this cat, Tiger Lily, and... She was, uh, you know, a vulnerable little girl and loved to go outside. Just yeah. was constantly like, let me outside. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> she, she was crazy yes. about going outside. I yes. mean, she, it's like, I don't think I've ever seen a cat like so interested <laughs> yeah. in being outside. She just loved it. And she was tiny. She's kind of like Michelle, actually. Yeah. And, and she, you know, and she would go out the door and God knows where cats go, right? Oh, yeah. And, you know, and I had had several scares before she passed where it would be late at night and she hadn't come back and I, I started getting really worried man and and finally she would always come back you know but so anyways. so one day she was hit by a car near the entrance to your development and so the song that i wrote was was about her and and it, it starts off by saying something like oh you're miles away on down the road. So I have this when I I can write some really depressing songs sometimes. <laughs> and 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 this is one of them and so the the bit is, you know, the the perspective I'm writing from is from Tiger Lily's as she's, you know, hobbled and and mm-hmm. like injured laying on the right. on the ground, which is a very sad right. image to have, but that's, you know, the sort of emo in me like just writing the most depressing thing possible. And she's watching the car drive because the car didn't stop. They they just they hit her and then probably knew it and then just took off. Right. And so there she is laying on the ground and just it's just heartbreaking to think about. Yeah. But so so she's watching the the car drive away and and she's like thinking these thoughts like oh you know you're miles on down the road. Ever since you gave me your your kiss, I've been laying here in pain. You know, so right. so that so the play on words was that if anyone just listened to the song, they would think it was about being, being someone left you that you loved, and right? You're it's like hurt. Oh, you're miles right. away on right. down the road. Right. Da, da, you know, so you would think like, oh, it's someone t- you know talking about a relationship, but yeah. in reality, it's about this actual cat that got yeah. hit by a car that actually saw a car drive down the road. And the chorus is all for you. It was all for you. It was all for you. All my life to see what I could not be. So it's just sort of this tragedy, like my life ended too soon or this ended too soon. But yeah, again, like I think one of the things that's brilliant about it for me is that if if you're just listening to it, you just get what you need out of it, which is, yeah, obviously a failed relationship of some way, of some sort. And I gave it my all. And I just couldn't work out. But instead, well, and then the underlying meaning, which you wouldn't know if you didn't know the story, is it's this ode to this little kitty. Right. And how much cats and dogs and pets give to human beings, really. You know, it's like it's all, they're all for us. Our pets are just like, like all they want is more of humans. They want to get pet. They want to hang out with us. They want to play games with us and it you know and it's just this sad like it's i you know i gave my life to you humans and you just ran over me yes, driving away yes, you yes. know it's just this very sad thing that so now brutal. that everyone's depressed this is, <laughs> this is great 
But um, uh, by the way, I I found it really interesting listening to it. That uh, we were talking about last time about the guitar riff in in my song and talk to, but it's a very similar yeah. pattern. You were saying like you know you must have written it, but actually it's you know thinking 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 thinking. It's it's that that um that kind of uh. Simple. It's yeah. not fully an arpeggio. It's just the two alternating notes. Right. So it reminded me a bit. And actually, the, those songs were together in the album. Like the yeah, so yeah. first and second songs. Yeah, so. I never thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The chord progression in this song is really simple. In fact, it 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 rarely changes. But there's something about the way that these very simple notes go together that just I don't know. They really just get to the, my core. Yeah. It's sad. There, it's actually not um, all minor chords, even. So that's kind of weird. In fact, I think it's only one major, one minor. Well, it's chord. like there's it's A minor, and then uh, and then it's a C, and then it's G and F. So it's actually one minor chord. It's in a minor key, but it's one minor chord. But it sounds so. It's so it's three major chords, one minor chord. Yet it sounds so sad. And the way that these very simple notes come together, I remember how I wrote this song was a very odd way for me to write a song was I sat down at the piano and played these chords and thought, mm-hmm. oh, this is kind of interesting. And then I thought, you know what? As an exercise, I'm going to write a melody on the piano. And so I went, dung, 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 dung. And I just kind of played around with right. it for a while. And then I was like, oh, that's nice. And then I sang it, <laughs> yeah. which I never write like that. I always write with the acoustic guitar sure, yeah. and then just sort of sing a thing. You know? It's a very catchy line. Right. So maybe that helped you distill it to a catchy essence right because you because know? i don't normally jump in notes that far i don't uh-huh. normally go dung 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 I, that wouldn't be something that would emerge right. for me naturally Interesting. but will on a piano because of course, cause your hand can, can move do anything fast yeah so yeah let's so let's just listen to that chorus again i guess So I thought I'd play er- an early version of this song. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So this is actually, you know, an, an early version. So this is just me, uh, total sure. rough draft. And it's actually when I was bringing it to Liquid Now. Oh, interesting. And I recorded it at home to bring to the band so that they would get an idea of how I might want the song to sound like. And so the drum machine track is like a total, it doesn't, 
it's a totally goofy drum machine track. Uh-huh. It's just a guide track, but I ended up kind of liking it for some reason. So, and I don't have the lyrics, right? Because so, this would come later. Because I always write lyrics l- yeah. late in the game because I'm not a poet, and so I'm making up random syllables as I often do. It's funny. It's pretty complete musically, actually. And if I didn't say those were made up random syllables, it, I find I, I wonder if people would not listen very carefully and yeah. think I'm actually singing a bunch of words that they just can't <laughs> understand. Yeah. I have this weird sort of thing that I do where when I first write songs and I don't have lyrics, instead of just going da da da, which is what rational people would do, I go flame lolly, I'm of lowly gla-. like I do this weird like speaking in tongues thing. <laughs> and um and for a long time, when I was in a band uh, a long time ago, I wouldn't ever write lyrics to my songs because we wouldn't record as often. Oh, and so I was just lazy. And so when we would play live, and I actually did this recently, I would just sing like that and no one knew. No one knew. Because when you're live, you can't, ah, you can't, you can't, hear. Artic- you can't hear the articulation of people's words. And so I would just make up random syllables and, and no one ever. <laughs> and someone goes up, oh, dude, I love your lyrics. <laughs> I really, I can totally relate to that sentiment. <laughs> yeah. But isn't that kind of a weird take? Yeah. It's kind of funny. Well, I mean, you know, when, when, I, when I'm trying to write a song, though, I don't do the weird syllable thing, but I do try to say... Whatever's in my mind, like, and it's usually doesn't necessarily rhyme. It doesn't really make so you sense. Say random phrases, I, but but it's whatever comes to mind from the sound I'm getting, like whatever feel I'm getting from the music, uh. right? So if it's starting to sound a little distorted, I'm like, but you try, you, you know, like you betrayed me or whatever, right? I don't think and, my brain can work that fast. I think I think I'm I, and plus sometimes I like just singing random syllables. Uh-huh. Like sometimes I find that the mood is more communicated mm. that way than. Sometimes I feel like when I add words to a song, it kind of ruins the mood because it, it locks down the meaning. Sure, yeah. When Sometimes I wish that music had no words and you could just sing uh. the, sing a melody. Sometimes, I, I mean, not all songs, obviously, but... How would you sing, my name is Slim Shady? Exactly. Here's another version that I recorded uh, in a cabin in the woods. It's just me That's with my, eerie. It's just me with my acoustic guitar. Yeah, but it sounds eerie. Especially because you said it's in a cabin. Oh. I fell down 
<laughs> my voice sounds funny. I think that I'm trying to be eerie. I think I'm trying to be really quiet. So then, in Bread Knife Incident, I actually re-recorded this song with keyboards only and drum machines only, and I actually changed the chorus. And I spent a lot of time in the song, and I spent a lot of time on the keyboard sounds. So tell me what you think of this. So that sort of brings me to hymn, hymnal, hymn, sure, yeah. hymn, cor- like church music yep. sounding. I, I have a soft spot in my heart for that classical, I don't know if they call it, I think they call it Baroque or Bach so- sounding kind of uh, arrangements. That It's just, it's very straightforward, but it, the beauty is in the interaction of the melody and the counter melodies and the right. harmonies. So I... I think um, that's what that came from. Yeah, that's. Uh, I remember you playing that for me a while ago. Obviously, actually, we played this song live. Did we? Remember? It was that one of the ones we played with the keyboards and. The yeah. Song? Oh. Remember? Wow. We, yeah, we, yeah. we, you and I played this song live. And what it, did I play? What did you I play? Keyboards? keyboards, I think. Okay. I think did we all have keyboards at that point? I don't know. I we don't had, know. we went through a very weird phase yeah. where we were like. Pure keyboards. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but anyway. The Primo Limo. Do you remember all those recordings? Yeah, we should play those yeah, sometimes. those are fun. So I changed the, the, the chorus melody a little bit in the second bit. Uh, I always kind of liked it with this variation. When I hear the original song, it always kind of bugs me. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, this was during the... We liked uh, a lot of bands at the time that were doing this kind of... Like MGMT. MGMT and stuff. I Obviously, I have a soft spot in my heart for the original... Well, what I call the original, which was the... But what's interesting about it is like, it's a good remake. You know, it's like when you hear the... Uh, like the Tori Amos version of Smells Like Teen Spirit or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, oh, hey, they did an interesting remake on this one. Yeah. <laughs> and it's got that... It definitely has a... Very different vibe for me because it's like obviously the the sadness is still there, but this one's more like um, uh, so so this one is more like about the music, right? Yeah. Whereas I think the previous version to me was more about the lyrics, right? 
So it's almost like your previous point about like almost not needing lyrics. Like this one might be okay without it, whereas the previous one you really needed those li- yeah. those lyrics. Right. So I don't know because you know the keyboards are doing a lot. Yeah. So like you're listening to like whoa what's happening here and then the kick or the the beat comes in and then it's a little dancey and it's right. it's interesting. At the very end, I remember copying your bassline. I, I remember at the end of the original song, your bassline has this really cool upward progression that is oh that I is think I know what you're that's about, yeah. dissonant to the final yeah. chord. I'll, I'll play that bit. Let's see if I can find it. So I, I stole that and encoded it. Sorry. Nice. I, I always liked that. That, but you were always good at like figuring out that dissonant, cool note. That, I like doing that. That's, that added something new to the situation. Well, you know what I think is one of my earliest memories of hearing that in a song, and I don't know if it was on purpose, or whatever. But you know, in the song "Let It Be," yeah, like so. And this is before I knew any music theory or anything. There's that moment uh, towards the latter part of the song where he's talking about, "I wake up to the sound of music, Mother Mary." Wake up to the sound of music. Mother Mary comes, comes to me, speaking words of wisdom. I think it's wake up to the sound of music. I, I'd have to look at, the, but it's it's like the last verse he sings, right? Mm-hmm. Normally, when he's playing that, he's just going, he's just playing the straight, um, like the straight A minor when he when he hits it. But in that one, he hits the E on the bass, and it's like the it's a it's an inversion of the A minor, which makes it basically a, a in in figured bass. It's a six four inversion, and and I when I was a kid, I didn't know what I was hearing or anything. But I just and it's super fast. But I was like, that's so that sounds off. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah, and so then you know I I grew up with that, and then I would I would pick it out in songs. Yeah, there's some songs where. Uh, either the voice or the bass. Oh, yeah, sometimes, yeah. like they do something, and I'm like, "Ooh, I like it." Yeah, Interpol yeah. does that a lot. Yeah, uh, the Strokes do that a lot. Right. So, yeah, and obviously the Beatles do. Yeah, it. yeah, and and of course you can find that. Speaking of Bach, you can really find it in some of his fugues and things like that. Right. Where you're like, because it don't sound right, but right. it's what gives it the haunting beauty. Right. That's kind of a classic classical music yeah. thing, is to have the theme. Yeah. And the under, well, I don't know what you call it, but the underbed or whatever yeah. changes in in mode. Right. And the theme, even though it's the same line, sounds completely takes a new different. Color on. Yeah. 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 I was like, that's complicated writing there, folks. You're listening to two geniuses talk, <laughs> talk about music right now. I don't Genius know. This is spelled H A C K. Any any, <laughs> any uh, other questions about this song? Well, so in the end, right? Like, are you are you done with this one? Yeah, I spent a lot of time on that last track uh-huh. trying to get it to be as perfect in that vein as possible. Okay. So yeah, I can't. I mean, maybe I'll do an acoustic version. I sure. I sometimes fantasize about doing an all acoustic album. Um, you know, in fact, you and I played this song acoustically right. on stage. That's right. A couple months ago, and you sang harmonies. That's right. And you forgot. 
that you were not singing on the entire song or what did, what did you do you <laughs> you thought you thought you were supposed to be singing the entire song when in fact you weren't supposed to and so <laughs> was that how it went i forget i don't remember but i ended up yeah was, oh no no or i or you wanted me to sing the song but i didn't start till part way i don't remember yeah yeah people liked the harmony people liked it yeah they yeah. commented um well anyways that's really good are we going to do more of these i like this well, if the listeners like it, they should let us know by going to Psychology in Seattle and sending us an email and letting us know if they love it or they hate it. Um, either way, we're probably going to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us. And please take care of yourself. Bye-bye. It was all for you. It's all for everyone.